Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. It's probably safe to assume that those of you listening to this right now don't need to be convinced of the importance of physical exertion or going outside or staying physically fit and active. But I think it's also safe to assume that we don't spend nearly as much time thinking about the best ways to stay mentally fit. And that is the purpose of today's conversation, to get each of us thinking more clearly about the things that we should and shouldn't be doing to optimize the health of our bodies and our brains in order to keep both of them functioning at a high level, whether we are 22 years old or 82 years old. To get this conversation started, our guest today is Dr. Michael Merzenich, a neuroscientist who has been working in the field for over 50 years and whose work primarily centers around the plasticity of the brain and how we can, through training, keep up and improve the health of our brains just as we know that through proper exercise, we can keep up and improve the health of our bodies. Dr. Merzenich is a professor emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco, and the chief science officer at Posit Science. He is also the author of the book, Soft Wired, which is a book I'm reading now and that I'd encourage you all to check out. In this conversation, Dr. Merzenich and I discuss the important neurological benefits of going fast, going outside, and undertaking new activities. We also discuss some of the more effective and less effective ways to exercise our brains, what disorders we might be able to avoid with proper neurological training, and we talk about the changes to our brains that are the result of the increased amounts of time so many of us, and so many of our kids, are spending in front of television, phone, and computer screens. Now, before we get started, there are two things I want to tell you about that are very much related to today's conversation. First, I want to remind you that Outer Bike is coming to Mount Crested Butte. The best bike demo in the universe returns to the world's best trails next month from August 16th through the 18th. You can choose from over 1,000 different bikes and enjoy the world-famous trails of Crested Butte and Mount Crested Butte. All full demo and bring-your-own-bike registrations include access to the lift-serve cross-country and downhill bike tracks of the Crested Butte Mountain Bike Park, as well as access to classic rides like Lupin, Upper Loop, and the Lower Loop. Register today at OuterBike.com, and while you're up at Mount CB, you should most definitely come say hi to us and check out Blister HQ, which is located in Elevation Hotel, which is right next to the chairlifts in Mount CB. So come ride Outer Bike, come say hi to us, and come check out Blister HQ from August 16th to August 18th. And then, after you listen to this conversation, go check out our latest episode of Bikes and Big Ideas with Darcy and Ian from Ant Hill Films, the studio behind ridiculous films like Unreal with Brandon Semenik, and their most recent film, Return to Earth. I had my conversation with Darcy and Ian from Ant Hill the day before I had this conversation with Dr. Merzenik, and when you listen to them both, you'll see how they are interrelated and how this conversation with Dr. Merzenik underscores the message of the Ant Hill guys. 
So let's now get to my conversation with Dr. Merzenich about why we need to be training not just our bodies, but also our brains. And in one of my favorite parts of the conversation, we'll talk about the importance of going fast. Michael, how are you today and where are you today? Well, I'm in San Francisco in the middle of the city, more, more or less in the geographical center, and I'm doing great. Well, good. Well, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And just to get us started and to kind of set the stage, maybe you could talk a little bit about your current area of study and focus. Well, I'm a brain scientist, and I've been interested from the beginning of my career into why we humans do what we do and how, what controls our performance abilities. It's accounted for by our neurology. And I've studied this for many years. And my laboratory my research laboratory, which is at the University of California at San Francisco, was always focused not just on the basic research, but on the translation of the benefits of that research out into the world to help people who struggle or help people whose performance could be positively impacted by what we do. Now, that's what we're interested in. We're interested in human performance and the recovery of when it's lost or the improvement of when it's struggling. We're interested in, uh, in increasing people's resilience so that they have a safer, older life, so that they keep up their skills as long as possible in life and keep at it in a way that uh, all of those things they love to do, they can continue to do effectively. So I'm interested in uh, basically taking care of your brain, just like you think about taking care of your body to give you a better, a better life. And I mean, certainly with our audience at Blister, I think it is quite safe to assume that this is a fairly fitness-focused audience. We are probably thinking about that fitness a whole lot more with respect to our bodies um, and physical fitness rather than, say, cognitive fitness. And so uh, I'm very happy to be speaking with you today, and I think we're going to talk about some of these really interesting topics about brain fitness and cognitive training and the like. Well, Jonathan, uh, you know, you can sit in a desk uh, uh, problem solving all day and exercising your brain in various ways all day, and it's not doing a hell of a lot for your physical body. And so, too, you can be very active physically, and you can uh, be, uh, be a master at certain uh, things or skills that are your, a driving force in your life, but maybe you're not giving your brain the exercise that it needs uh, to really sustain its ability and sustain its health. So it's... it's it's not surprising in a way that, that there's a long history in athletics where people perform at a great level, at the peak level, uh, mostly before age 30. And in their 30s, um, even a professional that's really, in, really engaged, really with it, things begin to fade. And now we have this sort of recent discovery. Uh, there's several wonderful world athletes that are demonstrating this. Tom Brady would be a sort of a signature example who say the hell with that. You know, we're going to worry about our brain and our body in a way that sustains us and demonstrate to us as models that you can sustain yourself to a, in a higher level. So it's all about understanding what your brain is asking you to do. The brain's been sort of the neglected organ. It's not like it's not the most important thing since it's us. You are your brain, you know. <laughs> the person you are has been created within your skull in your lifetime. And, uh, and yet we don't really think about its health. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, uh, hey, Jonathan, uh, how are you feeling? You say, oh, I guess I'm okay. Well, you just had your annual brain exam. And what the hell is that? That's not medicine, really. That's, that's, 
there is no sort of everyday standard medicine of the brain. Medicine, to a large extent, when it deals with the brain, waits for a disaster. Waits until you can't control your life or you're no longer in control or you're so dysfunctional that you need special help or attention. It's disaster relief. And commonly, the disaster is unrelievable because things have been let to go too far. And what's really interesting about that from a scientific perspective is that your brain, in fact, is continuously plastic. And at any point in life, you had the power to improve it operationally. And generally, when you show up in the medical clinic and there's something wrong, you say, oh, my goodness, you are, you are one depressed person. There's lots of things you could have done before then to improve your circumstances. And so it's, it's, it's been a missing element in medicine, and it's really important uh, subject for the people out there in your, in, in your audience, Jonathan. Let's just back up a second before we kind of just dive in head first. Tell me a little bit about your background, your academic background, how long you've been working in this field. Well, I came to the University of California. Uh, first of all, I was trained at Johns Hopkins and then at the University of Wisconsin. Then I came to the University of California as a young scientist and uh, directed a research laboratory there for, for you know 45 or so years. And in that laboratory, my first focus was on uh, the listening brain. I was very interested in it as organization. I thought it was a great model to study aspects of brain function. And as a part of that research, because I have a practical side in the engineering uh, bent, you could say, I led a team that created one of the commercial cochlear implant device that recovers hearing in people that are profoundly or totally deaf. One of the things I learned in those studies was that they work better than we thought they should work <laughs> because when we implanted them, even though our way that we're representing sound in this artificial way was crude, over a period of several months, people implanted these devices heard everything. And they flawlessly associated this new hearing, this new translated hearing by their brain. Their brain had the power to make something wonderful out of the trashy information we we're feeding it with our devices. And, it, and that was recovered, you know, understandable language, speech, their native language operating with a high level of fluency. And I realized that that could only be true if their brain was continuously plastic. And that means continuously modifiable on the basis of, of, it, of how, how you're engaging it. And that was interesting at that point because the overwhelming belief in science and brain science was that the brain was only modifiable when you were a baby or a very small child. Basically, it grew up when you were a little kid and now you have an adult brain like the computer on your desk. It's hardwired. It's finished. It's all mature. And you're stuck with it. If it's pretty slow and uh, not too, too effective, you go to school, you got that for life. Take an IQ test to, in a kid when they enter school and, and you've defined their potential for the rest of their life. And uh, nothing could be farther than, from the truth, it turns out. What happened then, we began doing experiments looking at the, the plasticity of the brain. And other, of course, other people in the world did these experiments as well in different ways. And we quickly discovered that the brain is continuously plastic, continuously modifying itself. Every time you acquire a new ability or improve at any ability, you account for that improvement by ch changes in your brain. The brain is actually rewiring itself. It's revising itself. It's, it's specializing its machinery 
And that specialization accounts for the acquisition of the ability or the improvement of the ability. And think about that in anything that's really that you've mastered over a long period of exercise. What are you doing inside your skull? You're slowly, progressively changing your brain in ways that enable that growing power and ability, that, that enable all of that elaborate refinement that's occurring that, that underlies your mastery. And, uh, and that's, so now you have a brain that's very different from somebody that doesn't have that ability. It's, it's got, you can say, I'm now a, uh, I'm, I, I now have a, uh, I don't know, master uh, downhill skier brain. And uh, that's a pretty rare thing, right? And if we could look inside it, and people, of course, scientists have looked inside brains in all kinds of ways now. Uh, if you're good at playing the violin, that's your profession, you have a violinist brain. If you're good at skiing, you have a skier's brain and so forth. So you could say that our brain, what a gift we have the capacity to change our brain at any point in life for the better or in an improving direction. And if we don't exploit this gift, Jonathan, if we don't make use of it in our life, things that matter to us, we're just a damn fool. I'm very curious how much consensus there is around your specific claims of just how plastic the brain is or how controversial this statement is. It's sort of it's sort of like climate change. You know, 98% of the scientists of the world and every national academy and every informed group any any real really top scientist understands that or would conclude that have concluded that it's changing. You have to understand Jonathan that and that's so too here. I mean, it, there has been a period a transition of course from a period of which there are many non-believers to a period in which it is now generally accepted fact in brain science that the brain is continuously plastic. And of course, you can always find people, uh, you, you know, seek, uh, that are on the fringes of, of uh, brain science itself. For example, in domains of psychological science that argue about it. And also there are many pretenders in the, in, in brain change, uh, in the brain change uh, sort of remediation or help uh, domain. That, uh, that basically build things that aren't neurologically based and that haven't been confirmed to be effective. But Jonathan, on the other side of this, there's literally several hundred thousand experiments that demonstrate plasticity applies in brains uh, from the beginning of life to the day you die. So there's no question that the brain is in fact continuously plastic. And we can argue about what you can make out of it or how, you know, what exactly you need to do to improve it or how that relates to the organic health of the brain or how I would apply that training. If I was wanted to improve my ability to hit a baseball, I wanted to improve my ability to recover from a concussion or I wanted to improve my ability to live a longer life without developing dementia. That's complicated. All of those things are complicated, but, but, but through all of those things, you have the asset, the fundamentally undeniable asset that your brain is capable of change positively if you engage in a positive and systematic way. And you can witness it changing, you know, in anybody uh, in a day or two or a week. I have a, a friend who at uh, age 76 found out she had cancer. And uh, she said, well, I've always wanted to paint all my life and I've never painted. So I'm going to paint until in the couple years I have left remaining in my life. 
And uh, I have, my wife and I have uh, half a dozen of her paintings at our house and uh, at our house in the city and in a home we have in, the, in the, the wine country in California. And they're fabulous. And uh, so she acquired this ability from nothing. She'd never painted before, never done anything like this before. And she had not just an ability in the technical side of, the, of, the, of her artistry, but she had this incredible ability in aesthetics. And you say, well, where does that come from? It comes from the fact that she had the gift. Everyone has the gift of lifelong plasticity. If you can acquire any skill or improve at any skill at any time, you know, I submit that 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 ninety-year-old can, uh, play, of course, playing uh, pickleball or ping pong with their pals can get better at it. And the very fact that they can get better at it means that they have a capacity to change their neurology in a way that supports operating at higher speed with higher accuracy. And uh, that applies to any athlete, then that applies to any individual at any age in, in any point in life. It's a lifelong resource, Jonathan. One, one of the things that we've done in, in science is we've conducted studies in animals near the end of life, expected to die in a month. And, we, and they say, how plastic is the brain? It's highly plastic. We engage the animal in training and we drive very large scale changes in the brain of the animal. Across, in many ways, we can drive changes that are positive that you say drive the brain in a more healthful direction. And uh, the brain is organically more healthy as a consequence, even though the animal was expected to die in a month. So we've done a whole series of experiments like this that demonstrate that plasticity is pretty much good for life. I know one of the elements of your studies have been the neurological benefits of going outside and being active outside. And again, with our audience, I mean, these are not, not, I don't think you need to convince any of us that it's a good thing to be going outside and running or biking or whatever. But I do think it would be interesting to have you talk a little bit about the specific neurological benefits that arise by living an active lifestyle. Well, see, this is a complicated thing to talk about, Jonathan, because there's so much good in it. And so one of the, it's a wonderful thing that it is, this, uh, your audience is a group of people that, that uh, have a combination of the, of the rich experiences of really being engaged, really being engaged with the physical environment in a way that demands action, and commonly action at speed. And that's, that's a really interesting, challenging thing for a brain to have to do. Full of surprises. You know, those, those are, the brain loves surprises. In fact, what the brain is largely constructed to do, you have to think about what the brain of humans, what was actually evolved primarily to do. And that's to be match, masters of a physical environment in which you could, you sort of, you, you, you mastered the environment and what you're looking for is something that doesn't fit it and to respond to it with accuracy and speed. Because responding to it with accuracy at speed, giving it a valence, giving it a value is a critical aspect of survival. And of course, when you're out there, you're engaged in a way that you can smell the roses. You know, you can, you can, you can appreciate the beauty of the sunset or the, or the glint of the, of the flash of the color in the snow or the whatever. You're, in, you're, 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 you're absorbing it, you're exercising yourself in a relatively complete way, uh, neurologically and physically. So it's, it's just a wonderful um, 
uh, a, a way to exercise your brain in general, it's not enough in a, of itself. You know, you're not using your brain enough, you could say, in the sort of uh, executive control operations or in social emotional aspects of your operations that you need to operate in a complete and healthy life. But you're doing a lot that's really, really good for your brain. Let me just make one more point about going fast uh, and making fast decisions. Uh, when you look at a brain of, a, of, an, of an animal or a human being in the prime of life, and this is at the sort of peak performance age in, in the animal or the human, you see the brain is in, is in, in, in physically or organically healthy state. And it, it's, you could say its wiring is heavily insulated so that it can operate with speed, at speed. It has very strong, reliable connectivity connections that in the, in the brain system that are controlling its actions. It's, it's, it's got very good vascular support, so it's getting all the nutrition it needs in the right places to control complicated actions that are highly variable. So it's really set up, you could say, for operation in, in a very healthy way. And, uh, and of course, if, if you're, when you slow down and you begin to deteriorate, you know, you can use speed as a good general index of how effectively things are operating inside. And uh, one thing to understand about this is that speed is plastic. I can take anybody, almost anybody in the world, and train them. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, we train um, traders uh, of, of derivatives that have to make fast, high-speed decisions on the on a, on a computer, and their whole income and their whole success depends upon accuracy at speed. And it, it, commonly, very young men, incredibly fast, they can do things that you could not do in making fast decisions in the fly. And we can speed them up. You can take Tom Brady who has the fastest relief time of any quarterback at the time he began using our training strategies and he got faster. So, you know, it is, speed is an improvable resource in anybody. And, and, and knowing that accuracy at speed is the essence of, of high performance in lots of things. And it's not usually subject in an athlete or to somebody in, uh, interested in their performance limit, limits to exercise, you just don't exercise it. You know, it, you don't think of it as being, you think that what you're doing physically is enough, but it's not. Because the body can be, in a sense, uh, able to do things that the brain basically can't control. You have to think about the brain as well as the body. So what you're, you're saying when Tom Brady used our systems, talk, talk what, are, what are we talking about here? Well, we, we, we've known for quite a while that, uh, that driving improvements of accuracy and operations of the brain at speed is a key to driving improvements of brain health. So we, we, uh, with that realization, uh, we created a, we were permitted by the University of California to create a company. Uh, it's called, it, it, it's called Posit Science Corporation, but the, the main pro program that it generates is, is uh, called Brain HQ, Brain Headquarters, Brain HQ. And it focuses on improving your operations of accuracy at speed. And basically what it does is it makes adjustments to wherever your ability level is and it drives you to a higher performance level. And it does this in a whole host of different operations, some relatively elemental, making distinctions about what you see or hear 
some more complicated, making uh, challenging you to operate and making more compli complicated decisions at speed. And uh, many athletes, many high performance individuals, as well as many people that are struggling in various ways have used it to drive their brain in an improving direction. And based on that basic notion that anybody is subject to improvement in these very elemental ways. And, and Jonathan, we know that when we study in detail what happens in the brain, when the brain is exercised in these ways, you actually improve the performance machinery of the brain so that it's more reliable, it more strongly connects information from level to level in the brain. If the brain has more powerful ability to hold information in memory while you're operated on it in thought or in controlling your actions. It just turns the brain into a high performance machine where the captain of the ship, the controller controlling levels of the brain, the agency of the individual is empowered. So it's just a very good thing to do to a brain almost any brain and uh, that in ways that can impact your performance. So somebody listening to this, let's say that he or she is running once or twice a week, mountain biking once or twice a week or trail running, you know, during ski season, they're skiing a couple times a week. They are listening to, let's say several podcasts a week in different areas right? Let's say an economics podcast, a political podcast, and, you know, of course, all the blister podcasts we produce. And let's say they're pretty diligent about a couple evenings a week. They are reading Cormac McCarthy novels or Alice Monroe novels or watching interesting documentaries. In other words, I'm trying to paint a picture of a, what we might call a pretty well-rounded person who is getting good physical stimulus and exercise, and perhaps what we might consider to be pretty decent intellectual stimulus and exercise. Talk to me about the profile I just gave you and then how that might compare to some of the specific exercises you would have a person undergoing at Brain HQ. Well, first of all, the brain uh, wants you to be learning new things, and that and, and, and although you're Reading the, your Cormac McCarthy novel, which is something I, I thoroughly enjoy doing, and it's really good for you to do that and to be a healthy, it doesn't do much for your brain health. And, and the reason that it doesn't is because your acquisition of the ability to read is an old one for you, and you're largely reading on automatic pilot. And there's really not much of an advantage to you in keeping the machinery that controls change in the brain alive. That, to do that, you require new challenges or you require that you actually actively work to improve an ability. So it could be something I've been doing a long time. I said, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm uh, playing tennis and I've been doing it a long time, but what matters is that in a sense, you drive yourself in a positive direction. You take it seriously again, or better still, uh, take up handball, do something that, that elaborates the challenges that your brain has and continue to elaborate. So, you know, the, the, uh, think about engaging your brain as a new, in new learning as a re, re, in a regular way. That's really important. The second thing is, is that no matter what you're doing, the brain basically has to be exercised, challenged to operate again, so that it's operating more accurately 
and, and, and the things that you've just described, you're not really challenging it to improve at anything that relates to its physical operations or to its machinery. And it's asking you to do that. It's asking you to operate more accurately in ways that are really challenged, in which you're driving past now your degraded limits of what you could do before to a higher level again, so you're more like what, what your ability when you were younger. And you can do this in skill after skill and ability after ability, even when you're basically of an old age. You can take the average person that's 75 years old and you can drive them so that their brain speed is equivalent to the average person at 20 years of age by exercising their brain. And you put them in a lot more, that means that their brain has now had changed physically chemically, functionally, in all kinds of ways that support that high-speed, high-accuracy operation. And they have a lot better brain as a consequence for the going forward part, part of the life and every, every way they want to use it. So I'll give you one last example, uh, Jonathan. Um, a study was done about 13, 14 years ago where uh, uh, roughly 1,000 people were trained in a way that drove their improvements of speed. They were trained for 10 hours. And then they waited a year and they gave half these people another hour. They wait another two years. Now it's three years from the start of the study. And they give another set of people two to four more hours, a relatively limited period of training, a total of a, something like 14 to 18 hours people got overall. So now they look out 10 years from the beginning of the study. They haven't been trained for seven years. They can easily distinguish the health of those individuals who started at their 75th birthday from the individuals that didn't have that 14 to 18 hours on a computer training in a progressive brain training exercise. And they're still faster than when they started. So that what we're talking about is a tiny investment of time that made in the person's life that made a big difference in the quality of their life across that period of time and continued to make a difference in the quality of their life a decade later. So, you know, it, it, everything isn't that easy. You shouldn't be really thinking of brain exercise as being akin to physical exercise. In general, you have to invest some time in it. The difference is that once you speed up the brain, let's say, it uses it in a speed, it operates in a speeded up way, but has a relatively long in, uh, endurance, relatively long uh, 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 period before it, it's you're back to the, to the starting position. So you, you do have to re-up. You have to come back every so often. But there's great value in a relatively limited period of time spent in improvement. And you'd see this in your physical activities or in sport. Oh, by the way, I didn't say that at 10 years out, half the people, half as many people in that group that have done that brain training at speed had developed dementia. So twice as many that hadn't done it were demented 10 years after that program, the study started. So are, are you claiming that it seems, or are you saying we know that we can reduce the likelihood of dementia? Well, that's what the study said. And that's what that study concluded is that that, that, that did in fact, that was in fact an outcome. And uh, everything we know is consistent with that. I mean, we can, we can, again, we can take an animal near the end of life, we can train the animal, 
an animal looks like an animal that's relatively closer to, close to the prime of life in a whole host of ways that we'd judge the health of the brain. And, you know, one of these studies, uh, Jonathan, we just, uh, the animal again was expected to die in another month or so off the end of when we engaged the animal in this training. And we said, well, the animal's very feisty and very lively at the end of the trial. So we said, well, how long will the animal survive if we do nothing more? And it turned out that we increased the longevity of the animal by about 40%. The animal lived more than a year longer. So this is a, this is a rodent, so this is not a human. But, but, but the point is, is that it had a big impact on their general health, not just their brain health. You didn't like my, you know, very nicely painted picture of this, uh, you know, well-rounded individual who's reading, you know, her Cormac McCarthy novels in the evening yeah. and skiing. I liked it. Okay. I liked it. But, I think I'd like that person as a friend. <laughs> me too. But, but help, me, help me understand, because I feel like, you know, as a, maybe the humanities guy in me, feels like you were being a little dismissive about reading because complex authors where we're going to be getting exposed to new vocabularies or terms we don't know or ideas we don't know, right? If I read a book about the construction of the Great Wall of China, something I know not much about, it strikes me that I'm stimulating the brain in, in terms of ideas and history and remembering facts and names in a way that doesn't really feel like it's the same. And so explain to me, because I'm slow, why that doesn't get at the heart of, or, or have the kind of neurological benefits that you're describing. Well, first of all, uh, we used uh, tasks like or strategies like this in, as control tasks in our studies because we know they have relatively little neurological value. Or we use crossword puzzles or, 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 or we use... Uh, Sudoku or things like that, because people think they're valuable, but they actually aren't very valuable for your brain. And, uh, and uh, that, now, on the other hand, a person uh, is a hell of a lot more interesting. And uh, you could say once your memory is improved and once you're improved neuro in a neurologically functionally important way, then you're going to make better use of all of the new information. And you want to continue to grow in your understanding of things. You're a more valuable and interesting person. Of course you want to read. Of course, you want to continue to gather information. Your brain can't get something from nothing. It has to continue to grow the powerful information base it has in its encyclopedia. But that doesn't mean that from the point of view of brain health or brain function, it's a particularly useful. It's, 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 a, it's a form of light exercise, you could say, because it's a mastered, long mastered skill that's not particularly useful in sustaining the health of the machine. It's just not. And uh, so... That in fact, the machine can be operating in an elemental way. What this, how, how to put it? The brain is a deceiver in that it makes adjustments as you get older that basically help you get the answer right, even while its performance characteristics are degrading. And basically, uh, you can easily manipulate this process by increasing the noisiness in the processes of the brain. And when you do that, what happens is the brain slows down. The brain actually is much less refined in, in its ability to make, you could say, fast, accurate judgments of what's just seen or what is just heard. But 
it still gets the answer right. It's slowed down basically to get the answer right. If you think about, I'm looking at something out in the out in the gloaming in the evening, and I see something in the edge of the woods, and the conditions are vision visual conditions aren't very good. I say, what is that? You have to take longer to say that's a deer. You know, that's a, a and, and that's what the brain does. The brain adjusts its operational characteristics because what it has to do is sustain basic control. So the fact that you can still take care of yourself, you still know how to drive your car, you still know how to feed yourself, you still know the way to the bathroom, doesn't mean that your brain is in good shape. So what is what determines whether your brain is in good shape? Well, if it's still very strongly connected, it's still very reliable in its decision-making, it's it's still very elaborate in its control of action, so it's not it's not stilted and in a rut on almost everything it does. It still has a great capacity to take in new information and to learn new things and to acquire new ability. That brain is a very healthy brain, and that's what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to give a person back that may, might be slipping a little back a brain like that. That's what we're trying to do, just like when they were a kid. And uh, and the acquisition of ability when they were 25 was enormous. We're trying to get people back moving in that direction so that they're more like that 25-year-old. I'm very interested to know about the kind of people or populations that you guys have worked the most with. Like, it occurs to me that we have spent the entire time in this conversation talking to what we might call like well-rounded people or high achievers. Have you spent most of the time working with folks who are already doing pretty well and then you're improving them? What about those who are suffering from certain neurological disorders or clearly we wouldn't categorize as robust or um, healthy neurological situations? Right. Uh, well, you know, we published about um, the out, people that have worked with us because uh, all, all of our research is conducted in collaboration with people out in the medical science community at medical schools in different places in the world. But we, we've, we've published about 150 different scientific reports of controlled trials in different populations of individuals that have different uh, issues or in different places in life. And I'll talk about a few of those in a second. We have about 250 trials like that that are underway in the world. So a very large number, thousands of scientists have been involved in this in the world. But let's just talk about the, the main targets. The main targets have been to, to help people uh, at, when they struggle as children, struggle in all kinds of ways, struggle because their early environmental life has been very degraded and they really, they're really put behind the eight ball because that's basically degraded the way their brain has advanced. And now they're stuck in a... Uh, in a in a in a, an impaired condition because of that soft brain damage that they have to carry forward in life. This is a very common uh, situation in in, a, in in American and other uh, modern societies, and we know that most of the damage that they've incurred because they've had a terrible or struggling early life is irreparable, and it's just a, a sort of moral responsibility that we have, and knowing we can help them, find them, and help them, that we should do this. So this is a thrust. We focused on children that can't read in school. Because the capacity to acquire the gift of reading in school is such a such an important gift, and, uh, and, and we've looked at children at, the, at an older age that have various problems in struggling and controlling their behavior, 
We're trying to prevent their progression as they move forward towards a probability of addiction or mental illness or maybe criminal uh, behavior. Uh, we think that almost all of these uh, these um, increased probabilities, uh, that almost all of these bad outcomes are preventable, so most of these individuals. So all of these things could be achieved if they really did have a normal brain again, if they really did have one that basically wasn't, didn't have the weaknesses that would carry them forward into these personal disasters. Then we've looked at a variety of other populations. We've been looking at individuals, of course, scientists working with us who are uh, schizophrenic or who are de uh, clinically depressed or who are, do have various neurological or, 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 or psychiatric conditions. And we know that in all of them, the brain is plastic and we can identify specific weaknesses that the brain has if you're schizophrenic or depressed or, or you have an anxiety syndrome, whatever it is. And we know that you can drive the brain in an improving or strengthening direction. We think that, that one of the most important things we now appreciate is that we can see many of these things coming. So for example, you can look at a child and you can see the child has weaknesses that might carry the child forward into clinical depression or carry the child forward to, to, to being suicidal or carry the child forward into being uh, schizophrenic. And if you could detect it, the question is, can you increase the resilience enough to, to, to protect a child? And then we've done a whole variety of studies in older age individuals. In the athletic side, we of course looked at normal performance. We talked a little superficially about that. We've also looked at people that have head injury, concussion. We have strategies to try to help a person get past a concussion, or we think we might be able to improve the probability, reduce the probability that they'll have another concussion. Uh, We've also looked at people that have brain injury, traumatic brain injury, primarily soldiers or people that have had injury on bicycles or, or uh, motorcycles or things like that in the civilian populations. Then we've had studies in individuals who are just getting older and then getting older at risk for the end-of-life catastrophes that plague us. I mean, Parkinson's disease and, and Alzheimer's disease are high on the list, and dementia of all kinds of forms are, is obviously really a struggle for many people. And uh, we think that we can delay the progression to those conditions and that that's this. So what the bottom line in all of this is, is, is simple. Brain health should be managed. When you go to the doctor, instead of the doctor just saying, well, how are you doing? The doctor should actually measure something and something enough like they do with your blood pressure, you could say cardiopulmonary health, to evaluate it and to say, hey, Jonathan, you've got a problem here. Let's look a little farther and see if we can figure out exactly what this problem is. And then treat it. That is to say, make the person stronger. Maybe that's a lifestyle change. Maybe they'll say, they might say, Jonathan, you have to be more physically active and then you have to do these other things for, the, for your brain to keep yourself safer. But whatever the, that first prescription is, it's followed up by something that's slightly more medical. John, Jonathan, you need to exercise your brain in this way. You need to do these things that can drive your brain back in a corrected direction. But the brain health, should, like every other aspect of health, should be managed. And that's obviously, we know that now. We just, just almost never realize it in, in, in real life in the real medical environment. And so... In terms of the, so what should we be doing? Yeah, manage it yourself, Jonathan. That, and how do you do that? We say, well, how, 
how reliable, how effective, how fast am I in my operations and actions? Uh, you know, I play with, uh, with my uh, young cousin or my grandchild. Am I keeping up with them? Well, why not? And manage it yourself. At Brain HQ, you can actually, you can actually work at exercises a little for a while, and then you can go and see how your speed relates to the rest of the human race. If you're not on the high side of the human race, you've got a problem. Because half of the human race, just about, is demented by the age of 85. And you're expecting to live to be 85, and you do not want to be demented. So, so, so get, to, get to work on it. Think of your brain like you think of your body. You've been, you know, the people in your, in your uh, community of, of, uh, of interest are people that have really done a really good job of taking care of their body as a rule. So think of your brain as something else just as important to take care of. I mean, it is you. It's you. You know, and you really want somebody really smart up there in command uh, to the end of your days. So I've heard you say one of the things maybe I should do is take up painting or take up pickleball. God, God, God forbid. Yeah, don't read Cormac McCarthy. No, just. Oh no, 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 no. I know. Do not say that. No, 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 no. I hate people that stop reading. (laughs) Who wants to talk to them? That should be a bumper sticker. I hate people who stop reading. You, you have to continue to load up your your brain with information. You want, but you want a brain that can really make the best use of the new information you're gathering. So when you talk about Cormac McCarthy, it's a damned interesting conversation, and you see some nuance in it you might not appreciate it when you were slower you know and and that's 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 really what i'm talking about of course you want to continue to have a rich life and drink in the world and and travel and see it and experience it and load your life with surprises and fun of course um it just jonathan i one other thing i want to mention joy is really important finding sources of joy of fun things that things that you that you're you can be enthusiastic about that you can really appreciate and because that's also brain exercise and one of the ways to assure that you that you your brain is rewarded that's the most critical machinery to keep in a good state is to be a joyful generous person because it turns out you exercise that machinery just as strongly when you're generous is when someone is generous to you or when something good happens for you. So practice generosity. I mean, that's a really good source of exercise for anybody's brain. Now, why is that? It's because you, you actually engage the, mach- the reward machinery of the brain. And it's also engaged when you are rewarded. And it is the very machinery. It's, it's central in the axis of the machinery of the brain that's releasing the chemicals that are controlling change in learning. So it's 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 actually no fooling, helpful. And if you look at old people uh, that are really good survivors that are hanging in there to a very old age, you know the very successful agers, you don't find a bunch of grouches out there. You find people that generally can see life from a pretty positive perspective and who tend to be pretty generous in their operations and actions. And there's, that's not an accident. It was interesting. I recently was reading a book by a NYU professor 
uh, Scott Galloway called The Algebra of Happiness. And he talks a lot about how if you want to die quickly, isolate yourself. That goes hand in hand with what you're saying here. Well, he has another very, very, very good point. And that is that, you know, there's a, there's a very large body of research and, 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 and a very large group of people. Probably this has happened in part because the, the, uh, the science that comes from physical exercise and from the related uh, motor, motor science is really good in the U.S. And so there's a lot of science that's demonstrated that being physically active in a life is really good for your brain. And what's missing, in, in a way, is the opposite. That having a healthy brain, and part this is because we haven't really done a very good job of equating or defining what a healthy brain is and saying, you got one, right? But having a healthy brain is very good for your physical body. You know, I said before, if you train an animal that's that's close to the end of life, and, and uh, what you find is that, that it, the, it, the impact extends past the brain to their physical health. They live longer, lots longer. So the reason for that is, is obvious. Every organ in the body is directly innervated by, by, by brain areas in the, in, the brain, in the stem of the brain, but also there's very strong secondary hormonal influences and their influences on the autonomic nervous system that are controlling all the responses of your brain to changing conditions in your body. So you can actually see these things change. You can see your immune response change when the brain is healthier. All of those things are subject to influences from the brain in a healthy or unhealthy state on the body. So brain health relates to body health and body health relates to brain health. You, you know, we're, <laughs> these are inseparable structures. You can't, we're not headless and we're not bodiless. The things go together. One influences the other. You know, when we're talking about the plasticity of brains, well, there's a whole lot in the news and, and certainly a lot of people concerned about screens and social media and time spent in front of screens. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the ways to think about it is that there's an aspect of it that's really good, of course, or aspects of it. And I have the information from the beginning of time in the world basically sort of at my fingertips. And that's clearly a tremendous thing. What a what an improvement of the quality of life for every one of us. And then I have all kinds of ways to exercise my brain that drive me to make to operate at the brain at speed. And I have games, and I then I have informational sources that have at least an indirect basis of of improving my social contacts or relationships with people. Everybody's keeping track of everybody on social media. And uh, we all understand the positive virtues of those things. And they're, they're very, a very large magnitude, we have to say. This is, this is different. It's brain changing. The average brain of an individual from those positive perspectives is different from the average individual 20 years ago. Dramatically different from the brain of the average individual 100 years ago. It is not the same brain because the brain is driven in its performance characteristics in a specific specialized form. And now we have these, this massive engagement by these new forms. People are different now. In a sense, we're not the same creatures we were 20 years ago. 
50 years ago. And we can see this distance across our generations. And then there is the problem on the evil side. So let's talk about the evil side. When you have to look up the answer, when you look up the answer to every question that you have in life, that's another way of saying that you're not exercising your brain in reasoning. Now, how many tens of thousands of cycles do you go through in a year on, 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 in a lookup strategy that are not cycles in engaging your brain in reasoning or thought or operational thought? So that's a real problem. We have an, a, a, a massive number of people that do not operate in the domain of logical thought worth a damn. And that's largely because, and it's substantially less and less exercise faculty. We have people that are so engaged on their devices that they're disengaged from the physical world. They're not paying any attention to the, they can walk down the street. You can ask the average person. In my book, Software, I, I'd say, go out on your street in your mind and, uh, and, and, and describe it and think of what, what's there in detail, house by house. Go house by house and think of what's in front of it, what it looks like. And then go a block or two away, someplace you should be very familiar with, and make a second reconstruction. It's the very rare individual that sees, appreciates it, can re even reconstruct things on their own street because they're not paying any attention to it. We have a, a, we have a world of living zombies out there. <laughs> and you see them, I, I mean, I see them every morning when I walk to work. I see people out there that are completely within themselves in the majority. And this is very different. This is very different, Jonathan, from the average walk down the street 30, 40 years ago, where almost everyone greeted you. And almost everyone was engaged in some level in the physical world as they walked down the street. So, and then finally, there's the sort of ugly side, the, the, uh, the, the American Medical Association, the, the Associated Doctors and their definition of, of, uh, of clinical conditions now identify conditions that are specifically related to internet overuse. So 4%, uh, 5% of, of male children in the United States between the ages of 6 and uh, 20, 20 is not a child, but you get what the roughly 6, might be 18, I'm not sure, uh, have a condition. That's equivalent in a neurological distortion, again, to a substance abuse-related addiction. In Korea, the number is closer to 50% of male children. So, and, and we're, this is not going to lessen here. It's going to, it's going to grow. It's not just in the U.S. It's in, it's in uh, Europe, Canada. It's everywhere. So th this is a real problem. And then the last thing I'd like to say is that they're not just engaged, disengaged within the street. They're disengaged when they're out there. Go to a golf course now. There aren't very many people in the golf course. Go to the state park. And um, there are quite a few people there on Sunday, but there aren't, there's almost nobody there on Wednesday. People are disengaging from outside. And uh, they're disengaging from the kind of things that I think most of the people in your here uh, slowly, because it's just more fun for them to be in front of a damn little screen. <laughs> And I think this is a real, and so the bottom line, Jonathan, is I'm not going to say that people are just lots worse, you know, because there's a positive set of things to value from these new tools. And then there's the negative.
but they're different. They're very different. That's the main thing I, I'd like to say, Jonathan. They're just different. And we've, we allow things to change and, and have brains that are different in a, in a broad scale in our societies without any real understanding what the hell, where the hell we're going. So I think it's very possible that 30, 40 years from now, we're going to pay an enormous price for this. We might be driving a lot of people into the ditch without realizing that we're accomplishing that uh, at, the, at, at a young age. And we just don't know. We just don't know what the ultimate consequence of this is going to be. Are we starting to address this? I, I don't think we're effectively addressing it yet. I mean, there, there are modeled, lots of people are worried about it. The learning environment in schools is deteriorating. You know, in, in the, several of the large uh, cities in the San Francisco Bay Area have teacher uh, uh, contracts now that rarely extend past three to four years. Teachers can't do it. The classes, are, by the time the kid is 10, 12, 13 years old, the classes are too disruptive. You have to be a real master at controlling a class like that. So, I, I mean, it is, it is a problem. It is growing. More and more children are, are, are also having psychiatric issues and uh, more and more suicides, you know, other things that are reflecting this. And I think that we haven't really begun to address this on a level that could, uh, could turn, turn things around. I think I, we can, we're trying to understand how to do it in a way that's scalable so everybody can get the kind of help they need, but it's a, it's a tremendous challenge. And uh, meanwhile, Technology evolves, you know, that everything is on the path to making things more and more fascinating, addictive, and, and, um, and uh, pretty soon everybody will be living in the dream world that is the danger. I think part of this, Jonathan, is understanding these things on a level in which we understand that course corrections need to be made. Again, it's sort of like climate change. You know, we're very slow to respond to things that we know are true, and, and yet... Uh, 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 and in fact, one of the reasons we're so slow, so slow at responding is because they change slowly, and we don't we don't really see it coming until it's here in front of us. And then one of the problems with changing ourselves. Well, I'll give I'll give you an example. <laughs> in Korea, the Korean government decided several years ago that they had to help children that were addicted to video games. So they passed a law, the legislature did, that said that children boys, girls couldn't play video games between midnight and eight in the morning. I think that was hours. I'm not sure exactly. So they were going to deprive them of actually eight hours of, of continuous video game play. Well, three or four years later, this was actually used by the opposition political party as a, as a, uh, you know, depriving us of our rights to be addicted to video games. What a, you know, so, and it and had, had an impact. So, you know, we're changing ourselves. Changing ourselves is dangerous. It's dangerous. Without an understanding of what we're doing, it's dangerous. Give me the one or two most actionable things that a concerned parent could do. Can we generalize a little bit? Well, I, 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 my two pieces of advice are, are simple, and, and it's simple to say it and hard to implement it. Limit it. That's the first piece of advice. Control it. And then get out there. Get out there with the kid. You want the kid to be active in the world. 
you want the kid to find other things to do that engage them that they're really fun that are really fun for them and they're really good for them and they're 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 real world things they're not they're not fake world things and that could be a lot of things but it could be a lot of things that 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 parents in your community know all about you know it might be out there in the mountain or it might be out there in the on the hiking trail or the biking trail or the wherever but get the kid out there and and basically make that important part of the kid's life and then do everything you can to enrich and elaborate the way the kid is engaged with the world and uh and on their own being their own master and how they're engaged with the world you know you want the kid to develop the powers of of uh, of reason and control thought and you want the kid to be in engaged in activities in which they can be a real leader of women or men or people and uh parent can figure out ways to do that but you have to take it serious you have to take exposure to media and, and gaming seriously and have to limit it have to control it it's easy easy for me to say i'm an old guy you know <laughs> i mean it's a throwaway advice is a, is a, one of the most discouraging things that comes from an older person and when i say limit i don't mean i'm not a luddite i don't mean no use you know i mean of course, use these technologies. Of course, play a game. Go for it. Uh, uh, just just uh, within boundaries. I, I say this all the time, so I apologize to those folks who've heard me say this before in past episodes, but I still always go back to Henry David Thoreau's book, Walden, where in 1857, he is very worried about the oncoming technology and on the one hand, this is not this brand new problem, but it is maybe the magnitude is more significant than it's ever been. And it's changing decade by decade, and, and it's an acceleration. And that's that's a concern. It's an acceleration. Things things are, you know, that's the cycle that we go through to change into another, you know, epoch basically is shortening. So. And, you know, the, I worry about it a lot in relation to artificial intelligence, too, because obviously you could have a device sitting on your shoulder that sees everything you see and hears everything you see and does everything you do and has the information for the beginning of time accessible to it. So what the hell use are you? You know, I mean, uh, you're, then life is really a case of look up. You don't, you don't have to look it up because you're, uh, you can be informed about what, which way to when it's time to go to the bathroom. So, so the, where this is going is, is not completely clear, but what is completely clear to me is, is that we're changing our very natures relatively rapidly, and, and there'll be a price to pay for that probably. I would love, before we part, I'd love to hear you just say a word about this book of yours that you've mentioned, Softwired. Well, in Softwired, uh, Jonathan, I try to explain to people, you know, provide them with an understanding of the basics of, of plasticity science and brain science. And then I've tried to give people some advice about how this, the implication this bears for their everyday life. And it's really written for an, an informed, uh, the a average informed person that's interested in, uh, in understanding more about themselves. And I, I think it's readable, and I think a person it will help a per person understand the science, the level of the science, and understand 
more about what their brain is asking them to do. Because it's a big problem and people just don't understand what they're supposed to do. And so it gives a lot of advice about how to carry a consideration of brain health into your everyday life. And that, that, that was the goal. You can easily get it on Amazon and uh, help people uh, look it up and uh, make use of it. I think this is super important stuff and I appreciate the your lifetime uh, of work in these areas and for sharing what you've learned with us. So I'm very grateful for that. It was my great pleasure to be with you and with your audience. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Dr. Merzenich for the conversation. And to learn more, I encourage you to go to brainhq.com, have a look around and see what you think. And I also encourage you to check out Dr. Merzenich's book, Soft Wired. Thanks also to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And don't forget to check out our latest Bikes and Big Ideas podcast with Ant Hill Films to get a related take by some of the best mountain bike filmmakers in the game on some of the topics that we discussed in this episode. Finally, we hope to see you at Outer Bike right here in Crested Butte from August 16th through the 18th. So come on out, ride some sick bikes on some equally sick trails. And while you're at it, send us a note and then come link up with us and say hi. Thanks, everybody. Now, please go share this episode with your friends who you think might appreciate the stuff that we've been talking about in this episode, and we will talk to you again next week.